You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The Bible reading tonight will be given in three parts, all from the book of Exodus. And the first part of the reading is from chapter 7, starting at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The second reading is from chapter 9 of Exodus, and that one starting at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was formed till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, Hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Now the third and last reading for tonight is chapter 10 of Exodus, and that's starting at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt, 
So Moses stretched out his hands towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors at DPC. It's great to be with you tonight. Uh, as has been mentioned, there's an outline on our welcome card, uh, welcome page website, uh, and you'll find it's got lots of helpful information uh, to, to guide you through today's sermon. Uh, also, the passage is there. It's quite a long passage, as you saw, and that's useful to have that open. Or if you've even got a Bible, you might want to have that open in front of yourself. Uh, as we come to think about God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this amazing story that we've uh, just heard some highlights from. Uh, we pray that you would be with us, that you would speak through me, and then we'd come to a greater understanding of who you are. Amen. Well, the plagues in Egypt are more than an entertaining story. You know, we all know how it goes. Uh, Pharaoh has enslaved the people of Israel and God has demanded that he lets them go and he refuses. And so God sends plague after plague after plague until finally, finally Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. Uh, the water turns to blood, frogs fill the earth, uh, the land, uh, hail pours down from the heavens and it all climaxes in the death of the firstborn sons and then the incredible Red Sea crossing. It's all very dramatic and spectacular. I mean, particularly if you've watched a movie version or maybe like me, you've read a manga version of it. Uh, but the visuals are not the emphasis. See, this is not meant to be simply an entertaining story. This is a true account that is supposed to teach us something very important. It's supposed to make God known. First of all, God wants us to know him as the Lord who is powerful, unique and present throughout the world. You'll see that I've listed some references in your outline about this and so you can look up those ideas later. Uh, but God is demonstrating in these plagues that he's not limited in his power, he's not restricted to any particular location in the world, and in fact he is unique. He is the Lord. He is the only true God rather than just one God among many deities. In fact, listen to what Moses says in chapter 9, verse 29. When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord, the thunder will stop and there'll be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. God owns the whole world 
and he has the power and the authority to judge all who would oppose him. Secondly, God wants to make himself known to people throughout the world and down through the generations. In chapter 9, verse 16, the Lord says that he raised Pharaoh up so that the Lord's name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. In chapter 10, verse 2, the Lord tells Moses that he is to recount these plagues and what happened to their children and to their grandchildren. And clearly that worked, right? Because here we are, more than three and a half thousand years later, still reading about these plagues, about these events, and still learning about the Lord. And remember that, that word Lord there, I mean God's personal name, not his title. Uh, when you see the Lord in capitals or small caps, let's not forget that this is uh, talking about God's personal name in the Hebrew, something like Yahweh. He is the eternal, self-sufficient God. Well, today we're going to look at the first nine plagues, starting in chapter 7, verse 8, and working all the way down to chapter 10, verse 29. And there are lots of different ways that we could tackle this rather long passage. Uh, you may know that my preference is to you know, ordinarily work through a passage of verse at a time or section at a time, uh, but that's just not practical uh, for what we're looking at today. So what I'm going to do is pick up on the key theme of God's sovereignty, and I'm going to take you to different places within this passage to show you how that idea is supported, how it comes through. Now, God's sovereignty is about his complete and utter freedom to rule and do as he pleases in the world. There is no place and there is no situation that God is prevented from being involved in. The plagues in Egypt show that God is sovereign over the earth, he is sovereign over the heavens, and he's even sovereign over human hearts. And we are going to jump around quite a bit, so it might be handy for you to check out the list of plagues at the end of the outline on the welcome page. Uh, you'll see that there's a, a table there with some different information that I find interesting and maybe you'll find interesting too. Uh, but you'll see the, the nine plagues listed. Uh, we start off with the first plague that involves water being turned into blood. Then there's the second plague of the frogs the third plague of the gnats, then there's the flies, and then there's the, the fifth plague where the livestock die. Uh, next is the plague with boils on people's skin. Uh, the seventh plague is the downpour of hail. The eighth plague is the plague of locusts. And finally, there's the ninth plague with three days of darkness. So let's get stuck into it and see, first of all, how the plagues show that God is sovereign over the earth. In plagues 1, 7 and 8, we see that God controls the natural elements. He controls the water because he can turn it into blood. Uh, he sends hail, he blots out the sun. He can control the skies and the weather. Uh, then we see that God also controls the animals. In plague 2, uh, he commands frogs to pour out of the river and hop their way all throughout the land of Egypt so that they're even found in people's beds and in their kitchens. Then there's gnats and then flies and locusts that swarm across the land. And finally, in pages 5 and 6, God shows that he's sovereign over sickness and death by killing the livestock and sending festering boils onto the skin of people and the remaining animals. 
These acts of power demonstrate God's sovereignty over various aspects of the created world. They demonstrate that he is the creator. He can make new things, he can multiply existing things, and he can direct things. As creator, he has the power to do all of this, even in Egypt. It's not like he's just limited to one part of the world. This is particularly highlighted in the plague of flies. Have a look at chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. We read this there. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day... I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. God demonstrates that he is present in the land of Egypt because he controls the flies. He sends the flies against the Egyptians in judgment, but he also protects his own people by not sending any flies there. And these plagues surely are acts of judgment because they're coming from the creator and and they kind of involve these acts of of, uh, reversing creation. You might recall in Genesis 1 that God created humanity and gave them dominion over the earth and even dominion over the animals to, to use them in their kind of loving work of cultivating God's earth. But now the animals are rising up against the humans. Rather than humans filling the earth and subduing it, the animals are filling the land and stifling the humans. And they're even destroying the land. God gave the plants for humans to eat in Genesis. But now God's destroying them with hail and locusts. God blessed humanity and promised them uh, life, yet now they're surrounded by blood and boils, which are symbols of death. And let's not forget uh, the greatest uh, evidence of creation being undone is in the days of darkness, which is a reminder of what creation was like before God sent light. God is undoing creation. He's reversing his good order. He is bringing judgment to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people. Now, this is all pretty straightforward to understand, But perhaps you find it a bit harder to believe. The plagues are miraculous events that defy natural explanation. And so many people just dismiss them out of hand as made-up stories. You know, they don't have room for miracles in their view of the world. But I want to challenge three ideas that people can have about passages like this. Uh, The first is that People argue that miracles can't possibly occur because God doesn't exist. But that's to beg the question. You see, these miracles are listed in part to reveal that God is real and to reveal who he is. And so to dismiss these miracles because you've already made up your mind that God doesn't exist is to actually cast aside the evidence without considering it. Uh, The second is that people argue that while God might exist, he certainly can't go against the rules of nature, the laws of nature. 
But, you know, that position somehow takes this false assumption that God is limited by the physical universe and that he needs to submit to natural processes. In reality, God made the universe and he exists outside of it. The laws of nature, in fact, are just descriptions of how God ordinarily works as he sustains the world and keeps things operating. I think this is strengthened by the fact that God uses the natural world in his acts of judgment. You see, if he really wanted to do a spectacular miracle and, and really shake things up, he, he could have actually gotten the frogs as they come out of, came out of the water. They could have spoken to the Egyptians. Or imagine if the gnats kind of swarmed to form different letters to spell out messages of doom. I mean, God could have done those things. But instead, he multiplies and directs what's already there to show that these creatures and these forces belong to him. He doesn't just come in and take control of them. He's always in control of them. Well, the third position that people can take is that, you know, since we can explain other strange phenomena that might occur... Uh, through natural causes, then, well, these plagues can be explained in the same way. Now, for example, it's been known to rain fish on occasion, uh, and people will take this as a miraculous sign or maybe a sign of judgment from God, when in reality we know that weird weather patterns can occur and a big wind can come and pick up fish out of the ocean and dump them on the land. And so some well-meaning Christians try to take this sort of approach when it comes to the plagues. Uh, for example, they'll say that you know, the water in the, the River Nile only looked like it turned to blood, but in reality it was just red sediment that was stirred up and gave it a red look and that kind of choked the fish. And, and then when the fish died and the water's not great, all the frogs poured out onto the land. And then when the frogs died and their bodies started to decompose, that attracted flies. They'll even say that uh, kind of with an inundation of water and uh, the land sort of flooded a little bit and as the Egyptians are taking their livestock out into the fields to do work, they're kind of trampling through this water that's mixed with you know, rotting frog carcasses and that's how the livestock came to be sick because they actually contracted anthrax from the frogs. Now, the expl explanations do go on from there and become kind of increasingly complex and you can find them in books and on the internet. You can read about it if you're really interested. But even if we do say that you know, perhaps there are natural explanations, these events all occur in God's timing. I mean, when Moses or Aaron stretch out their staff or their hand, amazing things happen. And the plagues also end at God's command. If you look at chapter 8, verse 9, you can see that Moses even lets Pharaoh pick the time of when the plague of frogs will cease. And let's not forget that the Israelites themselves were often protected from these plagues. And so just because we can have plagues of animals today and you know, there can be strange weather patterns even in normal times, it doesn't mean that these plagues can be explained by natural causes. I mean, however you look at it, God is sovereign over the earth. Well, the next truth that we learn from the plagues is that God is sovereign over the heavens. 
And this is a key idea that we often miss when we read through this part of the Bible. You know, we tend to take this as a battle between God and Pharaoh over the fate of the Egyptians, and it's just fought on the physical plane. But there's also a cosmic or spiritual battle going on as well. It starts even before the plagues themselves get going. If you turn to Exodus chapter 7, go back to verses 8 to 13, you'll see how Moses and Aaron first perform one of the miraculous signs that Moses was given to show to the Israelites. Uh, So Aaron, he takes a staff and in the presence of Pharaoh, he throws it down and the staff turns into a snake. Uh, Then look at what happens in verses 11 and 12. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, these are not court magicians who just kind of do tricks to entertain the king. No, these are men who are sorcerers with secret arts. You know, they're probably even priests who serve the Egyptian gods. And they're able to replicate Aaron's wondrous sign, and thus begins a supernatural battle. And we get a pretty clear indication of where this will head when Aaron's staff eats their staffs. And you know, it's important to note that verse 12 does use the word staff rather than snake or snakes. Because you see, some people believe that the magicians are engaging in snake charming. You know, there's this technique where you can induce a state of catalepsy where a snake will become sort of rigid and Uh, It could almost perhaps look like a staff. And so the argument goes, well, uh, these magicians kind of knew this trick and so they had a couple of snakes they prepared to make them look like staffs and they threw them down and the snakes woke up and, and off they went. But if it was simply a trick, then surely the narrator would tell us. I mean, I think our problem with the idea that the magicians can copy this amazing sign is that we don't like the idea that unbelievers could also have supernatural powers. But we actually see plenty of places in the Bible where people are able to use the the powers of darkness to perform wonders. And so the fact that these snakes get eaten show that while the magicians have some power, God's power is greater. And this is seen again and again. In the the first plague, the magicians are able to copy that. They can turn water into blood as well. And the second plague, they can also call forth frogs from the water. But what's interesting is that they just replicate the signs of Moses and Aaron, which actually fits pretty well with what we see about demonic forces in the Bible, that they only mimic what God does. They only mimic what the creator can do. Also, have you ever noticed that the magicians don't stop the plagues? I mean, sure, it's, it's great that they can find some water that's not turned to blood and they can turn that into blood as well and they can see all the frogs piling up so they call forth more frogs. But what's Pharaoh going to do with more blood and more frogs? I mean, surely it would be a much greater act if they could actually restore the water and get rid of the frogs. But they can't do that, can they? The magicians soon realise they've met their match, though, with the plague of gnats. Have a look at chapter 8 
verse 18. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Now, this is not to say that these men became believers at this point, but I think they're acknowledging that the God of the Hebrews is at work and maybe he has a power that's a bit greater than theirs. And, you know, it's interesting that we're only a third of the way through the plagues and Pharaoh's best men are already stumped. In fact, the next time we hear about them is in chapter 9, verse 11, where we read this. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. I mean, think about it this way. These guys were, were priests who served the Egyptian gods and here they are with the boils. They're most likely in a state of being unclean, ceremonially unclean, and they can't even perform their priestly role in the Egyptian courts now. They have been defeated. But God isn't going to stop there. He's going to show his sovereignty over the heavens by revealing that the Egyptian gods are powerless. Uh, Listen to what Tim Chester writes in his commentary on Exodus. And he starts with the sign of turning a staff into a snake. And I'm going to read out some Egyptian gods. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce the names properly, so just forgive me for that. Uh, Chester writes this. Snakes were a fundamental part of Egyptian religion. In their belief system, the world was created by the sun god who took the form of a snake. So more is happening here than one supernaturally created snake eating another. In this prelude to the plagues, the main event, Egypt's gods are destroyed by God. This pattern continues. Many of the plagues are attacks on specific Egyptian gods. Happy, the god of fertility, was closely associated with the Nile. Without the river Nile, there was no fertility in Egypt. There was no Egypt. But the Lord turns the Nile to blood. It may be that Pharaoh had come to the Nile in the morning to make an offering to Happy. Chester then goes on to list how God defeats Heket, who had a head shaped like a frog, Uh, Apis, the the bull god, Uh, Sekhmet, the goddess of plagues, Uh, and Nut, the sky goddess. And finally, the plague of darkness is a clear defeat of Ra, the sun god. The Egyptians actually believed that Ra, uh, as the sun, would uh, travel across the sky each day to be eaten by Nut, the sky goddess, and then he would traverse through the underworld only to be born each morning. So the fact that there are three days of darkness commanded by the Lord shows that the God of the Hebrews has defeated the king of the Egyptian gods. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that these Egyptian gods were real. Uh, I'm not saying that the God of the Bible had to battle them to become the big boss God and then he cleared out all of the, the other gods. But at the very least, I think we could say that Perhaps there were demonic forces, demonic beings, uh, who were pretending to be deities. But what we see here is that their power was limited and also localised. 
And so the Lord is revealing to the Egyptians that he is the true God, the sovereign God who rules over the earth, but also over the heavenly realms. The third truth we learn from the plagues is that God is sovereign over human hearts. Before the plagues began, Moses was told that Pharaoh would not listen to him because God would harden Pharaoh's heart. And that was all part of God's plan. You see, he wanted to ensure that all of his people could leave Egypt. I mean, as you read through the account, you see that Pharaoh kind of gives in a little bit each time. Uh, first, Pharaoh says that, well, the people can go sacrifice to the Lord, but they aren't to go too far away. But then he changes his mind. Uh, then he agrees that uh, the men can go. But Pharaoh says everyone must go, and so uh, Moses says everyone must go, and Pharaoh gets annoyed. Uh, later, Pharaoh says that all of the Israelites can go, but they must leave their livestock behind. And Moses says they need their animals too, and so Pharaoh gets angry again. And finally, when they do leave, the Egyptians are so desperate for them to leave and perhaps in awe of their God that they kind of willingly let them go and they hand over gold and jewels and clothing. And so this was all part of God's plan to reveal his power, but also to bless his people. And so God used the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to ensure that this came about. Now, we see it many times that Pharaoh considers letting the people go, but then his heart is hardened and he doubles down and he refuses to give in to Moses' demands. And this hardness is best described as having a stubborn or immovable attitude that resists God's will. Now, the challenge for us is that we frequently read of the Lord himself hardening Pharaoh's heart. And this can make people feel very uncomfortable. You know, it, it appears that God is violating Pharaoh's personal autonomy and the freedom of his will. It seems like God is unjust and he's forcing poor old Pharaoh to be a monster. But, but let me push back a bit here. I think we need a bigger picture of God's sovereignty. You see, God is sovereign even over human hearts and he is free to harden some and he's free to soften some. He can do all of this to achieve his own purposes, whether we like it or not. Now, before you turn off your screens and discuss, let me explain this a bit more and show you why I think this passage is teaching this idea. Uh, first of all, uh, it is actually worth noting that uh, after the first few plagues, it's Pharaoh himself who hardens his heart. It's not until the sixth plague that we actually read that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart another time after that, but then for plagues eight and nine, the Lord does it. And so we could argue that God only hardens Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh first does it to himself. And so really God is just giving him more of what he wants. Now, I think that's true to a point, but let's not forget that it was the Lord who said this would happen, that he would bring this about before Moses had even returned to Egypt. And then check out chapter 9. Uh, flip forward in your Bible to chapter 9 or scroll uh, through the outline. Chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. These are some really key verses. Chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. So did God just happen to be fortunate enough to find a pharaoh that would stand against him? No. God raised this king up for this very purpose. I mean, you could say that God had a wonderful plan for Pharaoh's life. The wonderful plan would be that Pharaoh would stubbornly resist God, that he would stand against God, that he'd be hardened against God so that God could reveal his own power. I mean, that, that should send chills down your spine. And this is the second point. Pharaoh is an object of God's wrath raised up for that very purpose. Therefore, it doesn't really matter who started the hardening of the heart. It only happened because God sovereignly ordained it. Now, perhaps you might wonder, how can God justly condemn this Egyptian ruler? Well, let's not forget that he still wasn't a great guy. I mean, he'd oppressed the people of Israel and he certainly did still harden his own heart. It's not as if he was an unwilling participant in God's plans. You know, it's not like he was struggling to be a benevolent ruler and there's this God kind of poisoning his heart. No, Pharaoh, like all people, was born with a corrupt heart that is naturally inclined against God. You know, the third point to make here is that if God is to be sovereign, he must be sovereign over all, including our hearts, including our will. You know, in the, the Western world, we tend to hold up self-determination as one of our key ideals and then we expect God to submit to it. We have this perverse idea that you know, God rules over the entire universe except for the human heart and therefore he's bound by the whims of humanity and you know, he's just trying really hard to get his plan to work but he's always stumped and stymied by us. That is not biblical Christianity. The God of the Bible, the Lord revealed in these passages, is completely sovereign. If this were not the case, then we'd all be doomed because we are all like Pharaoh. You know, we're, we're all little kings and we set up our little kingdoms and we want to run things the way that we think they should be run and we think we should get what we believe we deserve to get and we kind of have this little area and we say to God, look, you look after the world, You're, I'm happy for you to run things and even to sort out the bad guys out there, but hands off this patch, this is mine, I'm in control here, God. The Bible calls this sin. This is what separates us from God. And it means that we are spiritually dead. We are cut off from God, the, the source of, of life, of spiritual life. And so in our state of spiritual deadness, of our hard hearts, in that state, we can't know God. We can't choose God. We can't seek God. We can't obey God. Apart from him, giving us life, apart from him softening our hearts. We need him to violate our stubborn wills so that we can receive eternal life. 
And you know, God does soften hearts. We see this happening even in Egypt. We see in response to Pharaoh's stubbornness that some of his very own people begin to have a proper fear of the Lord. It's, it's amazing how a wicked and stubborn ruler can sometimes help people to go, man, I don't want to be like that guy. In the prelude to the plague of hail, Moses warns the people to take shelter. And we read this in chapter 9, verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. And then later on in chapter 10, verse 7, we see this. Pharaoh's official said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realise yet that Egypt is ruined? And then in chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, we read this. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Who were the many other people that went with the Israelites? Surely they were Egyptians, some of Pharaoh's own people. And so I think this is a sign that God has softened the hearts of some of the people just as he has hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Well, what do the plagues tell us about God? Well, that he is powerful, unique and present throughout the world. He does this by showing that he is sovereign over the earth, he's sovereign over the heavens and he's even sovereign over human hearts. And so all of this means that he should be praised by all people. Now, before we think about our own response to this, I first want to show you how it is that today we can come to know this sovereign Lord and his power. You'll see this is the third major point on our outline. Hopefully you'll see, see now that the plagues in Exodus are more than just a dramatic story. Yeah, they teach us about God. But... This story, these plagues, don't seem to directly benefit us. I mean, we're not Egyptians in slave. Uh, we're not sorry. We're not Israelites uh, in slavery in Egypt, are we? So how do how do we get the help of this God? How do we come to know Him? Well, it's by seeing that we can know the Sovereign Lord and His power today in Jesus Christ. As you read through the New Testament accounts about Jesus, you will learn of His complete sovereignty. Yeah, he performed amazing signs and wonders to show that he is sovereign over the earth. He is the Lord come to earth. Uh, there's one story where he and his disciples were endangered by a great storm on the Sea of Galilee and he simply got up and rebuked the storm and it died down. And his disciples said this, even the winds and the waves obey him. We also learn that he's sovereign over the heavens. He cast out demons from people and showed his authority over the forces of darkness. After one man in particular had been uh, set free from an evil spirit, the people exclaimed this. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And finally, we learn that he is sovereign over human hearts. He knew what people were thinking. He knew what was in the hearts of men and women. 
And when he spoke of himself as the good shepherd, he said that his sheep know his voice and they follow him, they obey him. And it's not that you know, he sends out his call to all people and some decide to become sheep. No, he already knows his sheep and he compels them to come out of the world to follow him. He has authority. Jesus is sovereign. Yet, he was seemingly defeated on the cross. But even this was an act of his free will and his free power. You know, he chose to be judged so that we might be forgiven. As I said earlier, we are like little kings who resist God, and so like Pharaoh, we all face God's judgment. The plagues, they all point to the undoing of creation, the the coming of death and darkness. And on the cross, Jesus himself faced the plague of God's judgment. Jesus himself was undone. He was, if you like, uncreated. He died. And, and we know that there's this link of judgment at his death because there were those hours of darkness in the land, a sign of judgment. Jesus came under the just judgment that we all deserve. He paid the price that we owe to God. But to show that Jesus had succeeded in rescuing his people, in dealing with God's just anger. God raised him up to life as a new creation, as a glorified being. God is sovereign in his power and he is still redeeming people today, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to death and sin. And he is saving us through Jesus. And so if we repent and believe, if we stop resisting God, stop trying to rule our own lives and tell God to go away, then we too can be saved and we can receive the promise of everlasting life. So here's where we're going to finish. I want to ask you this big question. Have you embraced the sovereignty of the Lord? God himself tells us that the purpose of the plagues so that uh, people would know that he is the Lord and that the earth is his. And so rather than finishing this sermon with practical tips on you know, how to nurture a soft heart and tips on how to reach out to someone who has a hard heart, I want to just leave you with a big picture of who God is. So here are three points. Number one, he alone has the authority and power to judge. He rules over the whole earth and he also rules over your entire life, even your heart, even your secret thoughts, even your deeds done in private. He rules over your health, your finances, your work, your schooling, your holidays, over everything. God has authority over all. And yet this is a wonderful thing because in a time like COVID-19, when it feels like things are out of control and we don't know what's happening, we can trust that God is still in control. And just like back in Egypt, God can still use plagues today to help people remember, to give them a wake-up call so that they would know that God is in control, not us. Number two, he alone can save us and recreate us. 
You know, God truly is able to soften our hearts and the hearts of others. And so we should pray to him that he would do that. And let's look to him for our ultimate help because he is the one who can make us to be who, are meant, who we are meant to be. He is the one who can make us whole. He is the one who can not only restore us, but perfect us and make us the glorified creations that we are intended to be. He can give us everlasting life. Number three, he alone is worthy of our praise. You know, the whole point of, of, of rescuing the Israelites was so that they could worship the Lord. It's the same for us today. You now, God has rescued us so that we would worship him, so that we would serve him with our lives, so we'd obey him and honour him and love him and rejoice in him, so we would praise him. Praise him because he is the mighty, loving creator and redeemer. This true story in Exodus has been passed down through the generations so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that we might know that he is the Lord and that he is sovereign over all. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we are in awe of you, in awe of your power, your majesty, your love, your kindness. Help us to, to leave today uh, being in awe of your almighty power and help us to not see that as a threat but as a good thing because it means that you can help us. It means that you can act out your love for us by rescuing us. It means that nothing happens in this world that goes against your will, uh, your plan, and that you will one day restore this world that you will heal and restore and perfect us. And so please help us to hold on in hope and to praise your name every day. Amen.